John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's go before the Lord together again. Father, the sound of the rain just pounding on this building is just such a, it's just ministering to me so much. It might be loud, maybe a little distracting, but Lord, it's really blessing my socks off right now. Seems to me like a sign of the grace that you want to pour upon us, the power that you want to pour upon us, the cleansing, the refreshment, the nourishment, the resources. Oh, Lord, what a sign it is that you are with us through Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit. And so I thank you for the rain, Lord. I thank you for the symbol of it. And I pray that you would now rain on us with a more profound thing, namely your word by your spirit. I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds, that you would open our lives to listen to what you have to say and receive what you have to say and walk in the light of what you have to say to us, Lord. Please, Father, come now and lead your children in the way that we should go, I pray, and I rejoice in this, in Jesus' mighty name, amen. It was the first day of the week, and before the sun had burst over the horizon, the Lord Jesus Christ burst out from his grave. He had lived a perfectly righteous life. He had died a horrible death on the cross, a torturous death on the cross, and he was buried in a borrowed grave. But Jesus 
does not take kindly to graves. He does not like them. And so on the third day from then, he burst the bonds of death and he folded up his grave clothes as if to say, it's been nice, but I won't be coming back anytime soon. And he rejoiced in the Father that the Father had sent a messenger to roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb and Jesus emerged from the grave and onto a darkened landscape. It was no accident that it was dark when Jesus emerged from that grave because he is the light of the world. The sun gives us light, beloved, but Jesus is light. And early on the first day of the week, the dawn of a new creation had come. The light had dawned upon humanity. That very morning, Jesus appeared to one of his followers. Mary Magdalene was her name, and he sent her to tell the disciples what she had seen and heard in him. And with a heart full of joy, she obeyed her master, and she told the disciples what Jesus had told her, but they were confused. They didn't really know how to take what she was saying. They didn't know how to process the things that she was sharing with them. And they spent all day long just musing, what do these things mean? Where is Jesus? What, what's happening? Where is his body? What's going on? That evening when the sun had set and darkness again covered the land, they gathered together in a secret place and locked the door for fear of the Jews, but somehow Jesus slipped through that locked door. Somehow Jesus penetrated the barrier between him and those he loved, and he stood right there in the midst of them, and he spoke the powerful words. He said, peace be with you. He was standing right there. And I think they were as confused as confused could be. I think they wanted to believe, but they didn't really know what was going on. Is this the guy? I mean, who's ever seen anybody rise from the dead? Wouldn't that be a little confusing? And so Jesus, in his grace, showed them his hands. He showed them his side. He proved to them that he is the Christ, that he is the one with whom they had walked all these years. And and now that he had their attention, he said again, peace be with you, my beloved disciples. And then he added these words. As the Father sent me, even so now I am sending you. Those words are simple words, and they are profound words. And I want to spend this Mission Sunday meditating on them with you today. I want to press into them and pray for the power, the ability, the privilege of seeing the glory that is caught up in these words. When Jesus said, as the Father sent me, even so I am sending you, I don't think that he meant to say, that the Father delegated a task to me and now I am delegating a task to you. He sent me, I sent you. These aren't uh, organizational missionary type of words. He's pointing to something much more profound. I think that the Lord is saying that in the very way that the Father sent me and for the very reasons that the Father sent me, in that way and for those reasons, even so, I am sending you. So we have to think for a little bit about how the Father sent Jesus and then about what this has to do with our lives. This is actually the second time in the Gospel of John that Jesus used these words, or very similar words. So if you'll turn back to chapter 17, You will see there in verse 18 that Jesus was praying in the presence of his disciples and he said out loud in chapter 17, verse 18, he said, as you, Father, have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now earlier in this prayer, Jesus had made clear that he was sent out into the world 
out of the overflow of the endless and profound, the indescribable love that exists between the Father and the Son and, of course, the Holy Spirit. And for Jesus, the communion that propelled him toward the cross with, a, with an unspeakable joy... That communion was so profound that he could think of no better word to describe it than the word glory. He called it the glory of God in a number of ways. You can see it there. I think it's around verse 5. I forgot to note this in my notes, but I think around verse 5. I'm going to read from the NASB because it translates it better. Jesus said, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory with which I, I had with you before the world was. And if you meditate carefully on John 17, you'll see that the glory that Jesus is talking about here is the love that is shared between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. I believe that in John chapter 17, Jesus wants us to understand beyond a shadow of doubt that at the core of the core of the glory of God is a profound and loving relationship. Theology is not at the center of God. Love is at the center of God. The glory of God is in some measure about the manifestation of the various excellencies of God. It is about the glorious display of the holiness of God and the wisdom of God and the power of God, the strength of God, the patience of God, the grace of God, and so on and so forth. It is about those things. But those things are kind of the fruit. The root of the glory of God, the core of the core of the glory of God is the love of God for God. It is the love of the Father for the Son. It is the love of the Son for the Father. It is the love of the Father and Son for the Spirit and vice versa. This is the center of the center of all things. This is the fountain of life. This is the source of all light. And beloved, it is this love that propelled Jesus into the world with a love so boundless that it caused him to go to the cross with joy. It was this love that propelled Christ toward a, a, a torturous death for the glory of God and the salvation of nations. It was so powerful that it was more powerful than all the forces of nature that are combined. You can't think of a force or a combination of forces that is stronger than the love of God that propelled the Son into the world. And I am not exaggerating the case. In fact, I'm understating the case. Because there are no English words that can possibly grasp or describe the depth and power of the love that exists between God the Father and between God the Son. It is massive, it is glorious, and it is the reason that the Father sent the Son. This is how the Father sent the Son. The Father did not just send the Son to do a job. This is not a corporate task issue. The Father sent the Son out of the overflow of an infinite, powerful, saving, transforming love. And when he sent the Son, he gave him a mission. He said in so many words, my beloved Son, go. Seek and save the lost. I want you to live a righteous life and die a horrible death and be buried in a grave and come out from that grave and ascend back to me and in this way redeem sinners 
cleanse them from their sin, change their minds, change their hearts, bend their will so that they will want to do my will from the heart with joy. My son, I want you to go out that you might bring redeemed sinners into the depth of the intimacy that exists between us. I want you to love them so that they'll know the love that we know. I want you to love them so that the glory we know will belong to them and they will explode with the praise in the world that God deeply loves those who deserve no love at all. Oh, what a profound thing, beloved. This is how the Father sent the Son and this is why the Father sent the Son. The Father sent the Son out of an overflow of love to enfold unworthy sinners into the very love of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And when it hits you that God himself has invited you by the grace of Christ to come into the core of the core of his being, that will take your breath away. That will knock you to the ground in grateful praise and worship. This is the mission of the Son. This is how he was sent. This is why he was sent. If you look at chapter 17, verse 11, Jesus prayed this. He said, Holy Father, keep them, that is believers, keep them in your name which you have given to me. In other words, keep them in the name of Jesus Christ. Hold on to them. Grasp on to them. Cause them to stay saved and not just to be saved. My Father, keep them in your name, which you have given to me. Why? That they may be one, even as we are one. In other words, that they may share in the profound communion that we have been sharing from forever and to forever that they may know the love that we know, that they may have eternal life, that they may be enfolded into the very glory of God. This is the heart of the heart of the mission of God in the world, beloved. It is an overflow of love that seeks to enfold unworthy sinners into this love. The more you meditate on that, the more it ought to take your breath away. By the way, did you know that the Bible's favorite term for believers is the word beloved. I've said this before. I'll probably say it to you again a thousand times. And maybe at the end of the thousandth time, it'll start sinking in for all of us. The Bible calls you who believe beloved more than it calls you anything else. The second favorite term, by the way, is the word saints. It means holy ones. But the favored term is beloved. So you remember when Jesus was baptized and when he was up there on that mountain with Peter, James, and John, the father spoke audible words that others could hear and he said of his son, he said, this is my beloved son. And then that son went into the world to do the mission of the father and when he enfolded other sinners into the very love of God for God, now the father looks upon these people clothed in the skin of Jesus Christ and he sees us and he says, my beloved You are the beloved. You have been enfolded into the very love of God for God. You have been clothed with Christ and brought into the inner workings of the glory of the Trinity. You are not God. You will never be God. But by grace, you have been enfolded into the love of God. This is why the Bible calls us beloved. Don't ever think that any word in your Bible is a throwaway word. That word beloved is extremely deep. And I pray that God will give us insight. Every time you hear me say it from this pulpit, every time you read it in your Bible, I pray that God will help you feel what he did for you in Jesus Christ. This is how the Father sent the Son. 
And as the Father sent Jesus, so Jesus sends his disciples. What that means is that in the same way and for the same reasons that the Father sent Jesus, Jesus sends his disciples. It's all basically the same mission now. Jesus, in another act of stunning grace, thrusts his disciples into the world out of an overflow of the very same love that propelled him into the world. Beloved, he does not send us on mission out of a sense of duty or out of a sense of guilt. He does not need to use guilt. Churches, organizations that try to guilt people into being on mission with Christ do not understand the gospel, and I pray for them. People who grasp the gospel understand that God does not need to use guilt and coercion. He uses the power of love to propel his beloved into the world. Jesus sends us like this. Be drunk in my love and then go out into the world with my love. And as you go, here's your mission. Preach the gospel. Tell people about Jesus Christ. We'll see here in a few minutes. Mediate forgiveness. Mediate salvation for me. Seek to enfold other sinners into this profound love that you have come to know. The Father sent the Son into the world that we might come in to him. And now the Son sends us into the world that still others might come in to him. It's a profound thing, beloved. What an amazing privilege. The more you think about your sin, whether you have a past like mine or you do not have a past like mine, you know, for those of you who don't know, I had a, a, a drug addiction past for quite a few years, but not everybody's got such a harsh background as that, but still sin is sin, and all sin is black and dark and leads to death, and the more you grasp your sin, the more it ought to take your breath away that Jesus is not only willing to forgive you, but to enfold you in his love and enfold you in his mission. What an amazing God! It would be one thing for him to enfold angels who had never sinned, but for him to grasp hold of us who have sinned and to do these kinds of things with us. I I don't even know what kind of words to use about that, beloved. It literally blows me away. And I think that the more you grasp that, when you're on mission in the world, David, you're out there with the Somalis or Brian or whoever else, you're in the prisons and whatever else we all do in our neighborhoods or wherever we minister the gospel, the more we understand why the Father has sent us and how the Father has sent us, the more it will shape and change the way we think about our ministry and the way we carry out our ministry. It will fill us with relaxation and joy. Great joy, overflowing joy, the kind of joy that makes a person willing to endure the cross. What a powerful thing, and may the Lord, may he give us all that we need to get to that place. Now, if you look at chapter 17, verse 13, you'll see that Jesus purposely prayed these things out loud so that the disciples could hear them, and he said he did this so that their joy may be full, and he also did this so that the apostle John could hear every word he was praying and remember it later by the power of the Holy Spirit and write this prayer down. And what an amazing gift this is, beloved. This is the only place in the whole Bible where we have an extended account of the actual speech that went from the Son to the Father. It's the only place And it is an amazing privilege to get access into this relationship, into their conversation. And Jesus said, I did this for you. I preserved this in the Bible for you so that your joy in me may be full. Oh, blessed are those who are on mission because they are overflowing with the joy of the love of Christ. That's my prayer for us. On this Mission Sunday, whatever any of us do, 
to spread the love of Jesus, I pray that it would be the overflow of a love and a joy that comes from our Father. May the Lord grant us this. Let's now turn our attention back to chapter 20, if you'll go there with me. After Jesus had spoke these words, which again are simple and profound at the same time, he then did something that was a little unusual. He, in my mind's eye, he probably raised his hands over the disciples and he breathed out loud so that they could hear it. He breathed upon them and he said the words, receive the Holy Spirit. Now I thought about, Lord, why did you breathe like that? Why did you do this out loud so that they could hear it, remember it? John actually wrote it down. He didn't just say that he said this, he breathed and then said this. Well, it turns out that in the Hebrew language and the Greek language, the word for breath and the word for spirit are the exact same word. So in Hebrew, the word is ruach. It means breath, spirit, wind. And in, in Greek, the word is pneuma. It means the same thing, breath, spirit, or wind. So same word. Jesus breathed, and he said, receive really like the breath, the holy breath, the holy spirit. He, lay, he lifts his hands over the disciples, and he makes an audible noise. <sighs> Receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the wind of God. Receive the life of God. Receive the the, the light of God, the life of God. I think that Jesus is trying for the disciples to connect the sound of his breath with the words of his mouth so that they would remember the meaning of what he was saying. He was giving them an audible metaphor for the fact that the breath of Christ is the light of our life. So he breathed upon them and said, oh my beloved disciples, receive the Holy Spirit. And believe me, the granting of the Holy Spirit to the lives of these precious people was not some peripheral add-on to the package of salvation. It's not like, you know, you see in those infomercials, they're selling you their product, but then at some point they say, wait, but that's not all. We have another piece here to give you. It's not like that. This is actually very important to the whole core of what Jesus Christ is giving us in salvation because we need the power of the Holy Spirit to enter into deep communion with God. We are unable to do this on our own. Some of you struggle to really enjoy the presence of God partly because you're depending on your flesh to get there. The Bible says that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to escort us into the presence of the Father on the basis of what the Son has done for us. We need the power of the Spirit to enable our communion with the Father. We need the power of the Spirit to help us see and enjoy the glory, the love of the Father. We need the power of the Spirit to see and understand our mission in the world. We need the power of the Spirit to be able to carry out our mission in the world. We need the power of the Spirit to do everything that Jesus has called us to do. And I'll tell you, he's called us to do some crazy stuff. Look at verse 23. That's crazy what he says there. In verse 23, the Lord calls us to do something that is beyond the capacity of mere mortals. If you, my disciples, forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, the word you in this sentence is in the plural. So let's be clear that he's not necessarily delegating this kind of authority to every single individual. He was, at that time, delegating this authority to the disciples as a whole. And now after Pentecost and the formation of the church, he is delegating this kind of authority in the world to the church as a whole. But however you understand it, and even if you understand it rightly, you just have to be blown away by the fact that Jesus Christ is giving the church the authority to mediate forgiveness in the world. That is a stunning thing. 
I remember being a young Christian, this more than 20 years ago, I remember just reading John, and, and I read that sentence like I had never read it before, and it just shocked me, like knocked me to the floor. Like, what in the world does that mean? Do you realize they almost killed Jesus because he said that he had the power to forgive sins? They waited a little while, but they in, ended up killing him for that in part at least. And now he's delegating this authority to his disciples, and this is just way beyond mere mortals. So let me draw on another biblical metaphor to help us understand this and maybe bring it down to the, the, a level that we can understand and relate to in our lives. The Apostle Paul said in one of his letters to the Corinthians that Jesus Christ has sent us into the world to be ambassadors of reconciliation. He used those words. We are ambassadors pleading with people to be reconciled to God. So we are ambassadors of reconciliation. And just like earthly ambassadors, guess what? We are not the king, right? There is one king, and the ambassador is not the king. Ambassadors are representatives of the king. We are sent by the king to do the will of the king for the glory of the king. And therefore, the actual power to forgive sins is not in us, but it's in the king, and it's in the king alone. It's extremely important that we get this straight. I don't mean to stir up things I shouldn't stir up here on a Sunday morning, but this is a place where the Catholic Church just gets it wrong. The power to forgive is in the king alone. It is not in the ambassadors themselves. As ambassadors of the king... We have been given authority to speak on behalf of the king. And we are to speak what he has already spoken in and through his son. We cannot declare forgiveness or withhold forgiveness based on our own criteria. We must do these things based on the criteria he has declared in Jesus Christ and nothing else. And the king has declared that the deciding factor between forgiveness and guilt in the lives of human beings is whether or not they believe in the Son whom he has sent. The Father sent the Son to be the solution for sin in the world. He sent him to be the one and only all-sufficient sacrifice. He sent him to be the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father. This is the declaration of the Father about the Son. And so the mandate that Jesus puts on his disciples is to proclaim his name in the earth, to proclaim forgiveness in his name to the earth, and to acknowledge forgiveness upon the lives of anybody who will believe in Jesus and cling to Jesus. When disciples do that, they are not actually forgiving anybody. They are merely discerning and declaring the reality of forgiveness as the Spirit gives them eyes to see. So tonight at our quarterly business meeting, one thing we're going to do is welcome, at least vote to welcome, two new members into the life, life of this church. If that happens, if the vote is positive, we will not have made anybody a member of the body of Christ. This church does not have the authority to make somebody a member of the body of Christ. What we have the authority to do is to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, discern whether somebody is in Christ and then to declare what we see. Lord Jesus, 
we think this person is in Christ. We think this person is part of your body. We open our arms wide. We extend the right hand of fellowship to this person. We don't make anybody a member. We acknowledge it. Same thing with forgiveness. We are not the ones with the power to forgive. Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit so that we might have the eyes as a body of people to discern who is clinging to Christ and who is not clinging to Christ. And this alone really becomes the basis of the pronouncement of our forgiveness. But this is our mission in the world. And beloved, I want to bring us back again to the big picture. The reason he's given us this kind of authority, there are other smaller reasons, but in the bigger picture, he's given us this authority because he's sending us out into the world to enfold other unworthy sinners into the love of God in Christ Jesus. He sent the Son out that we might come in, and now he sends us out that others might come in. He's given us this authority, not so that we can walk around and really think that we're something and brag about, wow, we have the ability to mediate forgiveness in the earth. Woe to us if we let that kind of arrogant spirit come upon us. He gave us this privilege so that sinners in Elk River and Rogers and in Ramsey and St. Michael and Monticello and wherever else any of us live, so that sinners in our cities might come to know the love of God in Christ Jesus and we might rejoice with them and rejoice in him. That's what this is really about. This is about the ever-increasing joy of a love that cannot be stopped. The light is shining in Christ and the darkness will not overcome it. Period. Oh, I urge you, beloved, to meditate on these things. The more you understand the depth of what Jesus is saying to us, the more it will fill you with joy as you do what he's called you to do in this world. The way we do what Christ has called us to do is almost as important as what we do. And there is just a joy there waiting for us, and I pray that he'll give us the desire and the ability to take it. Now, on the day when Jesus first spoke these words, it turns out that one of his disciples wasn't there. By this time, Judas had already died, so there were 11 disciples left. But of the 11 disciples or apostles, one of them was not in the room, and his name was Thomas. Later, after this whole scene, the other disciples found Thomas, and they told him about what had happened and all the things that Jesus had said. But Thomas stubbornly refused to receive it. And he said these words, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the marks of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So if Thomas was an American, he would be from Missouri, right? He'd be from the show me state. I have to see it. He was hard-hearted, beloved. He was refusing to believe. Maybe he was confused. Maybe he was dismayed. I don't know. I don't want to judge him too much. I just know that his heart was hard and he would not believe. The next Sunday, a week later, The disciples gathered together again and they locked the door again and Jesus got through that door again and he stood among his disciples again and he raised his hands over them again and he spoke these words again. Now for the third time he said to his precious disciples, peace be with you. The utter shalom of the Father be with you. And you know in the Hebrew culture to do something for the third time is to raise it to the highest degree. This is a meaningful thing. And now after saying that, he turned his attention to Thomas. And I love Jesus so much. I love him for his tender mercy and his grace. He could have rebuked Thomas openly in this setting so easily, and he would have been right. He would have been just. Nobody would have accused him. But instead of being harsh with Thomas, he was gracious to him. He was compassionate to him. And he didn't just show Thomas his hands in his sight. He said, Thomas, come here and touch me. 
Put your fingers right inside the wounds. Do whatever you got to do. Check it out. And then as Thomas was going through the motions, the Lord gave him a gentle, perhaps a rebuke, and also an invitation. Same words. He said, Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. And with that, the Bible doesn't say it exactly, but if I was Thomas, I would have fallen to my knees and said, my Lord and my God. He did use those words, my Lord and my God. If it was me, I'd probably have dropped to my knees. If nothing else, out of fear, <laughs> my knees would have been buckling. It's like, oh my God, I'm in the presence of Jesus to my knees. My Lord and my God. Thomas believed, beloved, deep in his heart. This was no superficial belief. This was a, a, a life-altering, an eternity-altering belief that had just gripped this man. Jesus knows a teachable moment when he sees it. And in this moment, he, answered, he asked a very masterful question. He said, Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Now think about that question with me. I think that the Lord is saying, Thomas, is the sight of my body the physical sight of my body and the physical touch of my wounds is that what actually just saved you right now? Is that the reason you believe? You saw the evidence that you demanded? You demanded evidence from God? And in his grace, he gave it to you? Is it the evidence that just converted you? And I think that the obvious answer to Jesus' question is no, it's not. Jesus, again, was probing Thomas's heart, and in a way, probing all of our hearts. There is a lot of evidence. The evidence matters. You know, to a Buddhist, to a Hindu, about their religions, evidence is meaningless. It doesn't matter. If you could prove that Buddha never existed, Buddhists wouldn't care. For Christians, it matters very much that Jesus is who he said he is and that the things that the Bible says happen, that they actually happen. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that if Jesus Christ did not in fact rise from the dead, there is no salvation for anybody on this earth. So evidence matters. But I'll tell you something, beloved. Evidence saves nobody. It does not. The thing that saved Thomas in that moment was the life breath of Jesus Christ upon him. It was the being of Jesus that gave being to Thomas. And it is the being of Jesus that gives life to us all. And this is why Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I don't think he's saying they did the harder thing, Thomas. You are okay. You're sort of at level, uh, level two, maybe down there at level three. The people who believe and haven't seen, they're at level one. They're, they're better than you. They're higher than you. I don't think that he's saying that at all. I think he's trying to say that from then on, everybody will have to believe without physically seeing Jesus. And blessed are they because they will know what actually converted them. There may have been evidence, but they couldn't touch the wounds. So blessed are those who can say, because they have to say, Jesus deserves a lot of glory from me because he caused me to see him when I could not see him. He caused me to feel him when I could not touch him. He caused me to know him when I could not hear the actual audible sound of his voice. He caused me to believe from his spirit to my spirit, from his soul to my soul, from his heart to my heart, from his mind to my mind, from his light into my darkness. He made me believe. Blessed are the people who can do that. And you know, at the end of the day, Thomas was able to do that as well. Thomas had to say, at the end of the day, I believed, but it wasn't mainly because I saw. It was mainly because Jesus caused me to be alive. I think that the Lord 
led John to remember this story and write down this story because he wants us to understand the nature of true belief and he wants us to understand that belief comes as Christ himself reaches out and touches a person's life. We should seek to persuade people, but we should know that what actually converts is the power of the Spirit of Christ. It's not on us. The heavy lifting is on Jesus Christ. The Somali culture is closed. The heaviness for breaking into that culture is not upon us. It's upon Jesus Christ. He may use us, but he's the one that's doing the work. He is the one that's going to do the heavy lifting. He is the one that's going to infiltrate and bring people into the profound love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And once they are enfolded into that love, it is the presence of Christ that will keep them believing, that will keep them being saved. It's the presence of Christ that will keep them knowing that Jesus is the Christ and it is the presence of Christ that will keep them believing that he has in fact sent them into the world in the same way that the Father sent him into the world. It is imperative that we live our lives believing that these things are so. Belief is necessary. Faith is necessary for the Christian. It is the lifeblood of the Christian in so many ways. But it takes the presence of Jesus and the power of the Spirit to sustain such faith. Like Thomas, I'm sure that some of us will have a hard time believing that God has actually enfolded us into the very love of God for God. It's not a small thing, is it? To talk about the fact that you are participating through Christ in the love of the Trinity for the Trinity? That is not a small thing, beloved. That is the greatest thing of all the greatest things. And to have the power to believe that is a fruit of knowing Jesus Christ. It will not simply come by argumentation or evidence. It has to come by the Spirit of God. Believing that Jesus has put his hand upon you personally, upon you, and upon us as a church, and sent us into the world out of the same love that the Father sent him into the world, believing that takes the power of the Spirit, the presence of Christ in our lives. Believing that the Lord has breathed upon us and given us his Holy Spirit to give us the authority to do what he has called us to do. Believing that he has made us to be ambassadors of reconciliation who are actually the ones in our cities that have the power to mediate forgiveness in the world. That's big. And to really live our lives believing that takes the presence of Jesus, the presence of the Holy Spirit upon us. It is not a fleshly thing. It is a spiritual thing. And it has to come by regular exposure to Jesus. We have a hard time believing sometimes. But we must believe. We cannot be on on mission with Jesus unless we believe. And so perhaps the Lord would say to some of us today exactly what he said to Thomas on that day. Perhaps he would draw near to us and say, Do not disbelieve, but believe me. You don't have to believe everything the preacher said. It's not about me. Believe the words of John chapter 20. Believe the words of John chapter 17. Meditate upon these things. Believe in the one who is the savior of the world, who is the light of the world, who is the life of the world, who is the overflow of the Father into our hearts. Do not disbelieve, but believe, beloved. For us to bear fruit together, this is what it will take. And I pray that God will help us to do that. Now, I want to take a few minutes here and just talk a little bit about the practicalities, sort of bring this back down to earth for a second. And I want to just make this as simple as possible. What does it mean to be the light of Christ in the world? What does it mean to overflow with this love? And I I just want to say this. To be the light of Christ in the world is simply to shine the light of Christ wherever he puts you in the world. It's not a big, complicated thing. 
To be the light of Christ in the world is simply to shine the light of Christ wherever he puts you in the world. To be the love of Christ in the world is simply to to smell of the aroma of the love of Christ wherever he puts you in the world. Be with Jesus. Receive love from Jesus. Come to know Jesus. Gather with your brothers and sisters and worship Jesus. Gather with your brothers and sisters and fellowship for the glory of Jesus. Do life together. I mean really do life together for the glory of Jesus and then scatter into the world with the aroma of Jesus upon you. It's as simple as that. I may have told you this before, but my stepdad used to wear cologne like a a little too much at a time, you know? He was one of those kind of guys that when he was going out somewhere, you could smell him when he was still getting ready in the bathroom. And it was overpowering before he even walked into the room. And for so many years, I just couldn't work up the courage to say, Dad, you got to back off on that stuff a little bit because it's strong. But when my dad would be around me, he'd hug me goodbye, and he would go off to his meeting. Guess what? I smelled like my dad. This is what it is to shine with the light of Jesus in the world. Beloved, it is so simple. Be near to him. You're going to smell like him. Be near to him. You're going to shine with the light of him. You don't have to manufacture this light. Just be near to the light. You'll glow with the light. Moses didn't make his face shine. God made Moses' face to shine. And so we gather together for worship. We gather together for fellowship. And then we scatter for mission. In this church, there are three words that are really important to us. Worship, community, and mission. The worship of the Father, the community of the believers, and the mission of Christ in this world. Worship, community, and mission. As I was praying about these things this week, a sentence came into my mind that I hope will be helpful to you. It's been really helpful to me. I would just say it this way. Glory of Christ is a worshiping community on mission with Christ. That's what we are. Someone asked me again, what's that church about that you're a part of? I think I'm gonna learn to answer this way. We are a worshiping community on mission with Christ. We are a people who gather to worship our Father. We are a people who gather to do life together in Christ for the glory of Christ. And we are a people who scatter to smell of the aroma of Christ all over the world. This is not rocket science, beloved. It is love. We are a worshiping community on mission with Christ, and I pray that Christ will fling us into every corner of this world for the glory of his name.